Good morning. If you have a copy of the Bible, if you would open it to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, uh, beginning in verse 15. Julie read a moment ago. We're going to try to do this through this series to have uh, somebody read the scripture passage ahead so you could even go ahead and turn in your text there uh, as we begin. Um, if you will uh, bear with a few uh, voice cracks this morning uh, and perhaps a few tears uh, along the way. Um, and definitely a tired preacher. Uh, I think it, it will definitely be good for me to be here and I hope it's not terrible for you, all right? So, uh, uh, that's the goal this morning. Uh, to make matters worse, I remembered uh, or was visible this morning when Julie read the passage uh, that I prepped to preach a sermon on the wrong text this morning. So I have a wonderful sermon on the blind beggar for next week already prepared, um, but we're going to uh, consider a new passage together this morning. And if you're here for the first time and you're like, that is the worst introduction I've ever heard for a sermon, um, let me put a bit of context. Last week, uh, right before the first service uh, began, I got a call that my dad died. Uh, I'm an only child and uh, this, is, this has been a tough week. Um, <clears throat> I um, certainly would, would extend uh, thanks to many who have loved and cared. Um, and don't want you to think, well, good grief, man, that church is ridiculously hard to, mat to make him preach the week after uh, that happened. There were an abundant uh, amount of people that could have stood here uh, this morning. I'm doing this as much for me uh, as, as for you. Uh, and you think, well, why? I mean, why, why preach uh, the next Sunday? I think there's certainly something that can be said for, for muscle memory, right? Just doing the things that we know to do that helps stabilize us. Um, I, I think there's also something to uh, setting the example of suffering well that, uh, that I feel a responsibility for. But I think there's also something just really good and beautiful for us about training ourselves to, to anchor in the truth of God's word, right? That um, not merely, yeah, I was looking... <laughs> thinking about the wrong passage this week, but I think it holds true for this text. Um, I, I was reading uh, Luke 18 and thinking, you know, it'd be really great if these were uh, verses on suffering, processing pain, or uh, death, or loss, or grief. Um, and they're not. And, uh, and one, of the, one of the things that I've just been mindful of this week is... Uh, the anchor of God's truth, that story is way more important than my story. Like, life isn't about me. Um, and, kind of sadly, life isn't about you either. Uh, there is a bigger and richer and more significant story that, that we have to train ourselves to anchor in. If not, the catastrophes of life get us way off track. So I think there's something really beautiful about saying, this passage really isn't about me. It's not about loss. It's not about death. It's not about any of that. Uh, but it is about what God is ultimately doing in the world. And that story, I think, gives us purpose to experience our micro stories that come and go and change a ton. Uh, last week when I showed up on the scene, there was a, a deputy sergeant uh, there at my parents' house and uh, had just this really good moment where he, 
uh, kind of took me outside and put his hands on my shoulders and said, we're going to make it, right? And he kind of mashed the button to turn his recording off. And there was like this, hey, step outside of your experience, settle down, and just do the next right thing, and it's going to be okay. And the next right thing this morning is to preach <laughs> this passage from Luke's Gospel. We got a little bit off track last week. Uh, I am indebted uh, to Donnie. Uh, Donnie got a call 30 minutes before last week's sermon uh, to preach. And he stepped up and, uh, and covered the text. We got a little bit off track uh, because I'd intended to cover uh, through verse uh, 17, uh, the 15 to 17 section. Um, these are fairly arbitrary breaks in the text anyway. Um, each of these chunks, we, they could be standalone units uh, or we could combine them in a myriad of ways. It seems a bit like Luke has, has just pieced together various episodes, and there's not really like a coherent thesis in Luke 18 that's connecting these very, various stories, but we're packaging together some scenes. So the breaks are uh, fairly arbitrary. This morning, we've got a combination of, of two people or two scenes of people that I think uh, is, is interesting or helpful for us to kind of line them up side by side. If you're taking notes, verses 15 to 17, we get a, a person or a group. And then in uh, the passage that follows, in verses 18 to 30, we get another very specific person. Neither of these are named uh, in the text for us, but they're demonstrative or uh, they're visual representation of uh, two, two groups. And I want you to imagine this morning if we did a lineup, and, and it would be a simple lineup because we've just got two groups. We put the character of verses 15 to 17, the infants that are brought to Jesus. And then we juxtapose that with verses 18 to 30. We have this rich young ruler. Okay? And we just hold them up side by side for you. And I were to ask you a question like, which of these do you think is in the kingdom? Who would you pick? Which of these is the example of kingdom living? Which would you pick? Well, those of us that have been in church for uh, any length of time would say, well, uh, it's going to be the unlikely one. But on the surface, the answer is clearly obvious. The rich young ruler, this leader, is the one who embodies life in the kingdom. And infants are the outside. But Jesus flips this for us in the text. I want you to look in, uh, verse, in chapter 18, verse 24. There's a kind of summary statement given, and it's given in the context of this uh, rich leader. Jesus uh, summarizing his response in verse 24. He becomes sad. We'll comment on that in a minute. But Jesus, Jesus uh, puts a kind of a blanket summary statement. He says, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In your worship guides this morning, uh, this week's passage or sermon was entitled, How Hard It Is, taken from verse 24. And in reality, I think this summary statement, how hard it is, gives us a good uh, category to consider both of these passages. Two points this morning to consider. First, uh, how hard it is to live a dependent life. Second, 
how hard it is to put possessions in their rightful place. How hard it is to live dependently, we could say, and how hard it is to, to put possessions in their proper place. First up, consideration of verses 15 to 17. How hard it is for us to live dependently. I'll reread the text uh, Julie read earlier. People were bringing infants to him so he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Jesus, however, invited them, let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. Now notice uh, I had packaged this paragraph with the preceding text. So I want you to think back. I didn't hear last week's sermon, but I'm going to uh, envision Donnie as considering us with this persistent widow in the context of prayer, the beginning of Luke 18, and then the, the scene with the tax collector and the Pharisee. Both of these are mentioned in the context of, of prayer. How do we approach God? And my initial intent was to consider the, the little infants in verses 15 and 17 as a, a kind of a summary for us of a life of dependent prayer, a life of dependency on God, that we would humble ourselves like little children. Granted, verses 15 to 17 don't explicitly mention prayer, but they do describe the process of coming to Jesus, of which prayer is emblematic. These scenes describe an infant, one who is uh, presumably too young to pray, certainly too young for robust theology, too young to articulate a mature understanding of who God is and what he's doing in the world. Notice in verse 15, the passage isn't even describing children, one who are of a certain age that they might be able to put some pieces together of maturity. In fact, the passage uh, doesn't say that the infants came to Jesus. They can't. They're infants. They're too little. So somebody brings them to Jesus. The point is, these are characters who are wholly dependent. And why would the disciples rebuke uh, those who are the bringers here? I mean, the rebuke isn't to the infants. They can't bring themselves. So the rebuke is given to those who are bringing the infants. And presumably, we would say what? Well, the, the intention is Jesus has more important things to, to consider, right? I mean, we're, we're nearing his final week. We're nearing the culmination of his life and ministry. Surely at this point, if we've got limited time and limited hours, we're going to spend them with what's most important, they're mature people. There are rich young rulers to minister to. But here people are bringing uh, infants. They're bringing the little ones. And Jesus does what he's been doing in the chapters leading up to this. He holds up these little ones alongside of groups like the Samaritans as examples of those who are in the kingdom, those who belong to the kingdom. Remember, we defined the kingdom a couple of weeks ago as uh, God's people in God's place under God's rule. So th the question is, well, what does it look like when you see God's people in God's place under God's rule? What those people look like? And here Jesus is saying they're going to look like little kids. They're going to look like infants. And he makes a bigger point. Uh, the point isn't um, 
just that they're going to become like infants, but the process of being an infant is how you get into the kingdom in the first place. You humble yourself like a little child before God. Uh, interestingly, if you've ever heard uh, people, particularly those who came to faith later in life, speak about their conversion experience, they're going to describe it in these kind of childlike terms. They're going to say something like, um, uh, I hit bottom, I came to the end of myself. And uh, interesting, they'll often capture it with, with child phrases. I cried out to God, right? I came to the end of myself and I cried out to God. I, I realized that I was hopeless and helpless. So like a kid in the night crying for his mother, I called out to God and he saved me. And Jesus says, right. He doesn't rebuke that posture. He doesn't chastise it. But he says, that's the way you come and that's the way you stay. Now we've got to be careful here because what Jesus is lauding is not infant uh, maturation. He, he's not talking about being infants in our thinking. Paul's going to contrast that. He's going to say, don't, don't be like little children, but be mature. Don't stay on the milk, but be nourished by, by the mature food of adulthood. We're not to be infants in our thinking. We're not to be infants in our maturity. We're not to be infants in our godliness. But we are to be infants in our dependency on God. We are, are to stay that way. And this is a real challenge for those of us who are working through the process of sanctification and maturation. It's to grow in godliness and maturity while staying dependent. That's a great challenge, right? To not, as I grow, learn independence. Because this is what our kids do, at least if we're raising them well. It's what we hope they do. We raise them and they become independent and they can stand on their own. And here Jesus is saying, no, that is not what I want. I want mature men and women, mature thinking, mature character, mature doctrine, but the humility of dependent infants. And I think packaged with what was before it, what's the best way to know if you're a dependent infant? Your prayer life. The best way to know is your prayer life. You can monitor it in all sorts of other ways, but the best thing, the best gauge for you is going to be, are you the kind of person that cries out to God in prayer? The prayer closet of kingdom citizens is a symphony of crying kids. Now, we don't like that sound, right? In fact, many of us are thankful that there are people in that back room attending to crying kids, so we don't have to listen to it right now. And so we intuitively think that's what God wants as well. Surely the cries annoy him. Surely he would rather us have some uh, peace and quiet to suck it up, to get our act together, to press on. That is not God's posture towards dependency. He is actually drawn to crying kids because he knows that our crying out to him shows that we, we need him. And he'd rather us cry out in need than suck it up and live life apart from him. 
this is hard. And it's hard in comparison or in contrast to the second thing that's hard in our text this morning, and that is really hard to put possessions in their place. Verses 18 to 30, I'll reread this paragraph again as well. A ruler asked him, I mean, notice the contrast here. We come off the heels of infancy, and here we've got a ruler. They're too far apart. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I've kept these from my youth, he said. And when Jesus heard this, he told him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he was sad, Jesus said, and then here's our phrase, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? He replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we've left all we had to follow you. So he said to them, truly, truly, I tell you, no one has left a house, wife, brothers, sisters, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more and eternal life in the age to come. So we've got a a ruler. Mark is going to tell the same scene. Uh, using what's become the sticky attribute to this, uh, this paragraph, the, a rich young ruler. And there's much to commend about verse 18, the way this is introduced. A rich young ruler who asks about inheriting eternal life. We know the, uh, the contrast that's going to come, but at least at the start, this makes sense. A rich young ruler uh, knows a thing or two about inheritance. In Jesus' day... That self-made individual doesn't exist. You can't manufacture wealth the way you do in our society. So how do you get wealth? You get wealth from generations of inheritance. Somebody takes a step forward, and then the next person takes a step forward, and the next person. And, and, and so it's very likely, the text doesn't tell us, but it's very likely that this rich young ruler came into his riches through an inheritance. So therefore, it's a natural question for him to ask, how do I inherit something bigger than that. How do I inherit eternal life? And he does this in the context of respect for Jesus, good teacher, what must I do? And it seems in the the passage that he's speaking of of more than uh, just uh, this eternal security, but like, how do I experience the, the peace and the shalom, the fullness of what you've promised for your people? We know that he knew about all of this. He was a rich, good, seemingly, man. We get rich, young, ruler. In the days before Amish romance novels, this is the man you want your daughter to bring home. He indicates, he's emblematic of uh, a figure of success in society. Jesus responds to him, In verse 19, no one's good except God alone. He deflects goodness, pointing, emphasizing, putting the spotlight on the Father. And then notice in verse 20, he points this ruler's attention to the commands that are horizontal, that are relational in orientation. 
He doesn't point his attention to things like honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. But he points to adultery, to murder, to stealing, to bearing false witness, to honoring your father and mother. Jesus knows that there are commands that he's not mentioned, but he doesn't correct him here. Rather, he does what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He presses this issue to the heart, to the focal point from which these commands derive. I think lurking in the background of this is something like Exodus 23, which says in the commands, have no other God before me. And he can say, at least on the surface, hey, I've kept all these commands, I've done what is right. But lurking under the surface of that, Jesus challenges him. Do you esteem me? Do you have no other gods before me? And if so, it's going to be demonstrated in uh, you giving everything to the poor. Certainly, this challenge of Jesus is not something that's required for all people. People don't have to give away everything to the poor. But Jesus knew this would get to the heart of this man. He knew that the only thing that would cause us to give away worldly treasure is a greater treasure. And so this is a bit of treasure hunting. Hey, where, is the tre- where does the treasure lie? And the rich young ruler, this leader, demonstrates his supreme treasure in his response. He's very sad. Mark says he fell on his face. Why? Well, the text tells us his motive he had a lot of stuff. He was very wealthy. It is hard to come to God with open hands when our fists are clenched around our stuff. It is hard to be an infant, to be dependent, when we've learned to depend on things other than God for our existence meaning, and purpose. Here, wealth is presented as a great obstacle. Fascinating in, uh, think about uh, God's work in the world, or just how people assume God relates to people. Riches uh, are seen as a sign of blessing from God. Hey, you've been blessed with the worldly, so well, that means God's smiling on you. This seems to be lurking in the background with uh, the interaction with Job. Satan comes to God, well, man, he's got everything. And here Jesus gives us a caution. Riches are far more a temptation, a hindrance, and a diversion than they are an indication of God's favor. In fact, he says, it's like camels going through an eye at the needle. This is hard. If you are wealthy, you better watch out. And we could preach this point if I thought about it uh, perhaps more. It's easy for us in these seats uh, to think about uh, relative wealth, to say, well, I'm not the one to whom this is directed. Let me, everyone in the room is the to whom that this is directed. Uh, Relative wealth in the world's economy, we are all richly blessed, which means this is far more of a warning for us than it is anything else. Be careful. Even if you're living paycheck to paycheck, even if you're wondering where your next meal is going to come from, you are wealthy. And as such, be careful. It's going to be really hard for you to be an infant, 
going to be really hard because you're going to hesitate. You're going to hedge. There's going to be things tethering you to this world. You're not going to run to Jesus like a despondent kid. You're going to get caught up in the cares of the world. The rich young ruler wanted to enter, but he could not receive. And Peter says here, hey, we've done all you ask. We did it. We gave up all this. And notice Jesus' response in these latter verses. He says, yes, those who have will get not their best life now, but their best life later. The best life's going to come, but you're going you're to have to defer some gratification for a while. He's going to exalt you. You'll receive in full, as the text says. But it's going to happen in eternal life in the age to come. In the latter portion of our time this morning, I want you to think about the reality of the challenge that's given here. How hard it is to live dependent, live dependently. How hard it is to put possessions in their proper place. These are hard things. This is countercultural. It's unnatural. We'll spend our life training ourselves in these ways. Um, the seventh family value uh, in our church uh, is, uh, speaks to this thing. We do hard things. It's probably the, the, the forgettable value in our family values list. Why include something like we do hard things as a mark of the people of our church? Um, I think we did it because it's a, a mark of a disciple of Jesus. The, the people of God are people who do hard things. This is a life of taking up our cross and following after him. But then ask the why behind the why. Why is this a mark of a disciple of Jesus? Because the only people who can truly do hard things are the people who are doing it in the power that only God can provide. Truly hard things, like living dependently, like putting possessions in their place, are only possible. Actually, they may be possible uh, momentarily, but they're not sustainable. They're only sustainable in the power of God's Spirit at work in our life. And this is where we get a little bit of a rub. Because when we consider the way of Jesus, Jesus changes the nature of hard things. If the Spirit is active in us, and, it is, and He is, through that power, producing in us a distinctive way of life, then we actually, and think with me for a minute here, Actually, hard things become the natural, easy way of being. They become the best way of living. Thinking about Matthew 11 in uh, the context of the blind beggar for next week's sermon, I think it applies here as well. Jesus speaks, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. And then you remember how that ends? 
my yoke is, is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that interesting? That the way of Jesus is described as an easy yoke, a light burden. Isn't it fascinatingly encouraging that the production of the Spirit of God in the heart of the people of God makes hard things easy by the power of God. And we actually become the kinds of people who see these as the best way to live life. Dependency doesn't become a hard thing that I've got to white-knuckle myself through, but it actually becomes for me the best way of being. I actually learned that that's the easiest way to be. Living dependent, drawing close, being lowly and humble like Jesus. Why? Because he gives rest. And when we do that, we find that relationship with him is actually enough. We get freed up from the relentless need to prove ourselves, to show that we matter, to make it in life, to climb the lot, to do whatever the thing is. And we actually get freed up to just say, it's okay if the only thing I'm really good at is abiding with Jesus. That's okay. And then think about how the Spirit of God makes hard things easy in our possessions. How, do, how does it actually produce in us a distinctive way of life? I was thinking about 1 Timothy 6 before I stepped up this morning. There's great gain in godliness with contentment. We brought nothing into the world, we'll take nothing out of the world. If we have food and clothing, we will be content. And then here's the contrast to the, the rich leader. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So consider that passage. If I told you, hey, there's a way to be that would actually help you avoid, uh, what does the text say? Plunging into ruin and destruction. Again, I'm uh, producing images on the fly this morning, but I'm thinking about standing on top of a waterfall. The sign, don't go there. People have died here, right? If you had a, a sign in front of you that said, don't go there, there's, people have plunged into destruction there. Okay, tell me. I don't want to go wherever that is. And then Jesus and, and, and Paul are holding up for you. Well, that, that path is a relentless pursuit of riches, wealth, clinging to worldly treasure. Don't go there. It's going to plunge you into destruction. So what's the easy way of the yoke of Jesus? Contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The easy path of contentment is far better than to live a slave to the stock market or interest rates. We can rest knowing that he is enough. Praise God that we have a Savior 
who has willingly bled and died to substitute for our ferocious independence, our trying to be God and pursuing slavery to sin, our sense of entitlement to worldly riches and our pursuit of them above him. And praise God that we have a Savior who has given us his spirit, who presses the yoke of Jesus upon us and reminds us that by the power of God, hard things can become easy. And I pray this morning that for all of us, the Spirit of God would be active in the people of God to train the hearts of the people of God to do what we could not do apart from the power of God so that he's glorified in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good gift of your spirit. Uh, Thank you for an easy yoke. Uh, Thank you that you care uh, so much about us, that you give us uh, good warnings about what will destroy us. And you hold up examples over and over again through the scriptures for us of the kind of people we can become by the power of your spirit. So would you, uh, in a very real and personal way, release our death grip on the things of this world, break our prideful independence, and make us infants wholly dependent on you. And as we do, as we live a distinctive kingdom life, we pray that it would be really evident to to us and to those who look on our lives that, that what's happening there is attributable to the power of God's Spirit. Would we live distinctive countercultural lives so that your spirit uh, gets all the the glory and praise. The power comes from you. We pray for the ministry of your spirit this morning, that you would prick and convict and challenge and prod us all, and that your word, the power, the instrument of your spirit, would make harder, hard things easier and would train us that that's actually the best way to live our lives. Would you do that so that Jesus is known and worshiped from here to the ends of the earth? In his name we pray. Amen.